Hi, this is Frank with Lifeblood Guitar Picks, and you're listening to Signal to Noise. This is Mike Watt from San Pedro, California for Signal to Noise.
All right, everybody, welcome to episode 12 of the Signal to Noise podcast. I'm your host, Aaron, and the song that we open the show with is called All is Lost by a band called Bleed the Freaks. Now, Bleed the Freaks is a band I got to interview for the Iron City Rocks podcast, so head on over to uh, www.ironcityrocks.com and check out episode 175 to hear that interview with Mike Roberts of Bleed the Freaks, and also hear a little bit about Jordan Schwartz um, and the project that he had put together with Bazillion Points Media called We Got Power, um, a great book that chronicles the, the California hardcore punk scene um, that we'll actually be talking about a little bit today on this show. So, um, it's been a while since I've done a show solo. There's a lot of things to go on to talk about. First and foremost, go over and check out castironring.com. Uh, that's kind of the brotherhood of podcasts that I belong to here. And it's really just a bunch of great shows. We're dedicated to rock, metal, hard rock. I'm kind of the odd man out with what I do with the gear, but I still like the music. And of course, I certainly uh, still do interviews and things for Iron City Rocks. So, you know, you'll always hear my voice over there. We have um, a couple of new podcasts, I think, since the last time that I talked about it. One would be the Mars Attacks radio podcast uh, with my buddy Victor over in Spain. And then we have a new uh, podcast, Wiki Metal that um, I had not heard of yet, and um, they're actually based out of Brazil. So welcome, both of you guys, to the podcast uh, circle here with the Cast Iron Ring. And, um, you know, check that out uh, for all the up-to-date, well, music that you can stand, because it's really great, great collection of shows there. All right, so on this episode today, i got a couple interviews. We are going to uh, start off by talking with Frank Fioc. Um and then we're going to close the show out with Mike Watt um, of Minutemen fame and, of course, Firehose and a few other projects. So uh, Frank Frank has an interesting project. Um, well, it's, it's on Kickstarter. So Frank is the, I guess, owner-proprietor of Lifeblood, Lifeblood uh, Picks, or at least one of the people involved with that. And so he hand-carves these guitar picks, and these are unique guitar picks. Um, and I think I've talked about Kickstarter in the show before. I'm addicted to looking for Kickstarter. I absolutely love looking for projects that are out there, seeing what's new creatively, especially for guitar. And I've backed a couple projects now. So um, I found Lifeblood that way. So he's on Kickstarter.com. Just search for guitar or even if you search uh, for Lifeblood picks, you'll see him on there. They have about 26 days to go and they're trying to raise about $12,000. Uh, so definitely go over and contribute to that if you're so inclined. I think it's an interesting thing what he's doing. Frank and I are going to talk about the type of picks that he um, that he gets there or that, that he builds. Uh, we'll talk about that in the interview. Um, I actually bought two. I bought the classic pick and I bought the fire pick from him. Um, and they're both very interesting. I haven't played with them yet. I've just held them in my hand. And I'll tell you, just from the, 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 the uh, feel is completely different. Um, and I can tell it's going to change the way that I approach the guitar a little bit, at least when I use these picks. So it's going to be very interesting for me to try these out. I'll probably be uh, talking about those either on the blog um, or in a future episode when I get a chance to sit down and play with those. So uh, without any other delay here, we are going to talk to Frank. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I have with me on the phone tonight Frank Fioc of Lifeblood Picks. Frank, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? Hey, great, Frank. Hey, thanks for doing. Uh, or thanks for agreeing to do the interview today. Sure. So, for my listeners who are maybe not familiar with your picks, because I just discovered you myself, could you tell us a little bit about Lifeblood Picks and how they came into existence? Well, about five years ago, I uh, well, I'm a guitar player. I teach school. I play about five hours a day in my job. I teach music and I play my guitar about five hours a day. And about five years ago. 
Uh, I developed severe tendonitis and had surgery on my right hand. I couldn't play for about a year, couldn't write. And um, when I resumed playing again, it was very painful. And so I uh, just, uh, for no, no other reason than to try and help my hand, I developed a uh, guitar pick uh, that seemed to help r- reduce the pain in playing. And as I began to use it more and more, uh, my hand healed. And uh, I'm able to play again at work all day long and uh, no pain. And, and uh, at that, when I discovered that the pick worked well in that regard, uh, I had no intention of starting a company or developing it any further than for my own use. Uh, but then I began to look at it uh, more seriously, because I discovered I could play things that I'd never been able to play before. And I liked the sound I, I was getting on my guitar. And I also discovered that it um, became kind of a transparent uh, thing in my hand. I was not, it was not like a, something I had to focus on holding. It just kind of became part of my hand. At any rate, then I developed it into uh, many, many prototypes, I've made thousands of picks uh, experimenting with it and finally ended up with the current designs. So what is it then that's different about this pick from other picks that makes it so much more comfortable to play? Well, it's curved. It fits around your index finger, not totally around it. It's curved. If you were to set it straight up, it's curved both vertically and horizontally. And the curvature is the hard part to that I work on all the time is to get these curvatures uh, perfected. But it, it essentially it fits around your first finger. Uh, and as you begin to manipulate it, it more or less sucks itself right onto your finger and becomes like an extension of your hand. Um, and it can be made in small or, li- or large sizes. And I experiment with different sizes all the time. And, and now you hand carve all these, right? I do. So, like, how do you choose the materials to make a pick? Like, for example, like I just ordered the, the, the classic. So what, what goes into the classic pick? What makes that different from some of the others? It's a soft plastic. Uh, I make a lot of picks out of polycarbonates. Lexan is the one that I prefer. Soft plastics, you can get anywhere from cutting board type materials all the way up to industrial nylons. Um, the harder materials, of course, produce a brighter, harder sound, and the, the pick lasts longer. Um, the softer materials obviously produce a smoother sound, uh, but are not as durable. And that's an interesting question because basically all options are open to me in terms of, ma- of what material I use. I make them anywhere from wood, out of wood to stainless steel, experimenting continuously. And, and in most cases, experiments are not successful. Uh, you end up making a pick, and it doesn't sound good, or it doesn't hold together, so you throw it out. And so I've developed a set of materials that I like real well. Mainly Lexan is the current material that I really prefer. All right, so I've seen the picks on your site, and they... They don't look hand-carved at all. Like they, they look very, very precise, and especially for carving plastic, like I, I guess I can't quite get my head around that. So could you explain a little bit more about, I guess, what the process is? Like I can't believe that, 
you're carving plastic and it looks like it's just been molded. So, <laughs> like, like how, how do you get it to look so nice, I guess? Well, you start with about, well, it depends. I used to start with a one-inch block of plastic. I've gone to a half-inch just to eliminate half the work. But you get a half-inch thick piece of plastic, cut it to about an inch and a half square, and uh, lay out your template on it, cut it out on a bandsaw, and then begin to, to carve it. Usually I use a, a, a moto tool, a roto tool, to begin the basic carving. Then I've, <laughs> I've become quite expert in, in how to, to find the, the right nail files, actually nail boards that uh, you use in a nail salon. They, they work fabulously well, and actually they'll cut through stainless steel um, very well. So as the pick begins to take shape, you go to finer, finer uh, abrasives. And uh, I usually co- I, I co- cut the outer curvature first and then scoop out the inside of the pick second. And you're right, it's, it's a long process. Uh, the ones that you will be getting, uh, they take about a day each to make. Some of them take a week to make. Some of the ones that I use at work, I'll spend a week on them uh, because I, I've discovered you can't make one from the top of the pick to the bottom of the pick. And, you know, it is just a guitar pick. You think it's a small item, but when you really begin to do the work on it, uh, it can be very, very uh, intensive amount of thought. And so basically what I've discovered is you have to look at the pick from all angles, not work on any one aspect of the pick. If you focus on, let's say, the top and, and negate the bottom part of the pick, you'll discover it has uh, irreversible flaws that you can't correct. So you basically keep turning the thing around and around and perfecting it little by little. On the Lexan picks, I basically, I've made a holding tool that I epoxy the pick to to make it easier to hold because I still have hand issues. I can't really hold anything really firmly, so I made a kind of a holding device that I can, I, I glue the pick down, carve it, unglue it, glue it, glue it upside down, and redo the whole process. And yeah, some of them take quite a while. Wow. So you, you mentioned that you, you like Lexan, you do a lot of the picks out of that. Have you found any other materials that you favor, maybe for sound or for ease of, ease of like construction? Well, anything other than stainless is, of course, the hardest to, to use. Stone, stone is a fabulous material, but it is very cumbersome to work with. You have to use diamond tools on stone. Stone makes a fabulous-sounding pick. Um, Lexan is the preferred material on my end. Softer plastics are great. They don't hold up too well, and you can't make them very thin. The thinner the pick, the basically the more you're uh, opening it up to breakage, and they don't last as long. So if you want a really thin pick, you have to go with a hard material like a Lexan or a stainless steel. If you want a real thin pick made out of soft plastic, they don't hold up very well. Uh, woods sound great, but you can't make a thin pick out of wood. They just, fall, they just disintegrate. And, you know, if you're like me, I tend to play from pretty hard, hard-edge electric guitar and the picks and the way I play is uh, soft materials don't hold up too well. Gotcha. So um, I've been using a lot of industrial nylon too. Nylon is a, a, a tough material to work with because 
it is so hard uh, that carving tools, you, you take a lot of time working with nylon. But then when you get a pick, it's pretty much indestructible. The other thing with these picks is, is they are curved. So if you were to drop even a Lexan pick, and if you had a thin Lexan pick, and you dropped it and stepped on it, well, you just cracked it and it broke. Um, they do that. The only ones that don't is if you make one out of a thin uh, stainless steel, then they can bend uh, and, and return to shape to some extent. Wow. Now, one of the pics I saw on your site was called the Dynamite Blue, mm-hmm. and that really caught my attention. So could you tell me more about like what's that pick made out of? That's one with a big hole in it? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a stone and I'm really not sure what kind of stone it is, to be honest with you. I went to a, oh, a stone shop outside of Denver, and it was a, one of their polished stones. I think somebody had it for a worry stone. I do that a lot. I pick up a piece of material and say, well, that'll make a cool pick, so I make it out of that. But it is stone, and, and that's one of my favorite picks. I use that design a lot. It just has a very nice sound. The thing to remember about it, at least in my opinion, with hand injuries in my case, is any flexibility in the pick um, over time makes your hand, uh, it exacerbates pain. If you think of it this way, if you have a very thin pick, and true, that pick doesn't move much, it doesn't flex much across the strings, but it does flex a little. And every time it flexes as you go downstroke or upstroke, your hand has to compensate for that flexing of the pick. It has to have a tiny amount of motion to compensate for that pick in terms of rebound. Uh, Well, if you play five hours a day, that compensation may occur 10 to 20,000 times or more a day. If you do that over 15, 20 years, you can do the math and see how often your hand has to do extraneous movement. So, in my opinion, a pick with very little flex at least in my case, helps reduce pain because your hand doesn't have to do that compensation. The pick doesn't move and it doesn't flex. Although I make some, uh, some players like a a very, very thin pick, which I can do as well, and they do flex. I like a pick that's thin that doesn't move. That's that's my typical, um, like, weapon of choice, I guess. But I'm very, very excited to try these picks out, the ones that I saw on your site there. Well, you know, the thing is, a, a curved, a curved uh, anything that's curved, if you hold it properly, it can be very thin material, but then it does not react like a flat pick just because the architecture of a curve has more strength. If you, if you look at an arch over a doorway, they have arches designed to hold a lot of weight because they don't flex same holds true with a pick. The architecture of a curve makes, makes a thin material less flexible at the tip. So you can have a thin material that doesn't move. If you have a flat pick, it will, it will flop up and down, so to speak. On a curvature, it won't flop nearly as much. So you can basically get a lot stiffer pick with a lot thinner material. That really makes a lot of sense. And I mean, if you think about it, you know, the, the way the human hand is designed, it's not flat. So using a flat pick against a curved material over time, it would make sense that that's going to, you know, cause some sort of injury or, or like, you know, you said just exasper- or exasperate. I don't think I'm pronouncing that right, but make it worse. <laughs> right. Well, what I've discovered is that 
uh, at least with my hand, is a flat pick requires a lot more grip for me to hold. And the curvature of this one, after you get used to the thing, it, I, I, use, I, was all, I played five or six hours today at work, and I was thinking about it. After a while, you don't even know it's there. It just wow. becomes part of your, your hand. And it doesn't move. It stays put. And it works fabulous. Um, but, you know, I was thinking about it the other day. I kind of scratched my head. I said, well, why is this so interesting? And then it kind of hit me. I said, well, if you had a table in front of you and you put a flat pick down on it, and you said, well, what's interesting? What can I do with that? Flat is flat. That's what you get. Um, however, if you have a curved article in front of you, the options become almost uh, infinite. I mean, curvatures can allow for huge amount of diversity, which is indeed what I've found. I make them all day long, all different sizes, all different materials, and it's very interesting to see where that curvature goes. Yeah, they, they definitely look like interesting designs. I think it's going to be fun for me to try to play with one, especially since I played with a flat pick for so long. So let's talk about the Kickstarter campaign, because <clears throat> that's, that's how I found you. Like, I, I like to go out to Kickstarter and just search for stuff. I backed a project back in, I think it was April, was the first project I ever backed. And since then, I'd love to go out and look for, you know, new, new products that are coming out, especially guitar-based. Mm-hmm. And that's how I found you. So let, let's talk about, like, you know, what's the purpose of your Kickstarter campaign? What's your goal? What are you hoping to do there? Well, with, in conjunction with my, uh, my partner, Ray, um, we've, <laughs> I've kind of come to the end of being able to make enough picks fast enough. Obviously, if you spend eight hours on one guitar pick, you're probably not going to get a whole lot out into the world. As, as fun as they are to make, uh, and they're one of a kind, you know, it's a definite boutique thing, which is great. I love to do it, and I'll continue to do it. But I would like to have a few standard models available that are almost exactly the same or as close as you can make it within manufacturing tolerances to have an exact duplicate of, say, one or two designs that can be marketed or sold or given away as lifeblood picks. Well... Having done a lot of research with engineering companies, that basically comes down to an injection molding tool. And a tool in this case means a, basically a mold that you have made by an injection molding company. And then you call them up and you say, I need 500 picks. And they put it in their huge injection molding machine, squirt molten Lexan in it, and pops out a pick. It sounds like it's not that expensive, but... Uh, it is. Uh, injection molding tools have to be designed, uh, computer-based designed, and then cut on computer lathes, and it's not something you can do in-house. And so you basically buy the tool, so to speak, the mold, and then you can uh, have them manufacture your picks for you. Wow, that's kind of neat. And that's, that's where the Kickstarter campaign came from, is to procure funds to uh, afford a injection mold uh, that's that, that's going to be, <clears throat> I guess that's really going to be instrumental in kind of getting this to the next level then. Well, and, and you know, it was interesting to go to the company, or one or two companies that I've researched. It's a fabulous industry and in how they manufacture these things. And I really had no idea that something smart, as small as a guitar pick could require that extensive tooling to do it right. But I think it's the pressure involved with injection, injecting mold, uh, plastic into a mold that will contain it 
and do it precisely enough to where you get a fairly exact copy is quite a science. Yeah, that's wild. Now, I, I'm curious, like, have you um, have you taken these picks to like any guitar shows, or have you taken them to like a NAMM show to kind of get your name out there a little bit, or is that going to? You know, we've discussed after? NAMM a lot, and I've given out I don't know, thousands. We've gone, we've researched guitar players basically all over the world and sent them to guitar players all over the world for evaluation. And a lot of guitar players have worked with us in, in the design aspect of it. Um, but no, we have not gone to NAM. Have you even maybe considered um, like approaching a company like Dunlop and saying, hey, would you like to manufacture these picks for us? Not at this point. Um, part of the issue, of course, as you can uh, imagine, is patent. Uh, yeah. And being not real patent attorneys or or business people in that in that world, we're still babes in the wood in that aspect and, and investigating that. So most companies, if you take an idea like that to them, they're going to say, "Well, is it patented?" If you say no, there's you know it's kind of like copyright. They're going to say, "Well, then we don't want to touch it because yeah. you're probably going to you know have some copyright or patent issues, which is what we're investigating along the road." I guess our take on it right now is the the prototypes that we have are um, still, you know, quite honestly, they're in developmental phases. Um, although I've got several models, especially the Lexan ones, that I I think are pretty well where they should be. So a company like Dunlop would say, well, okay, your design's pretty good, pretty well done, but we're not sure yet if it's where we want. And, uh, you know, investigating through you know, persons like yourself helps me a lot in terms of refining refining the design. You know, to be honest with you, it it really is a new concept and sound more than it is just a guitar pick because it sounds different downstroke than it does upstroke. And uh, for me, that's fabulous. For me, it, it gives me twice as many options. Uh, but a lot of players say, well, it sounds different going down than it does up. And I say, yeah, it does. And, uh, so that's part of the developmental aspect of this thing that I think companies are going to want to have more information on, and that's kind of what we're investigating right now. And that's kind of neat. It, if you can <clears throat> create something as simple as a guitar pick that can change the sound like that, I mean, guitar players are always looking for a way to change their sound. So if, if you can you know, completely change your tonality, or I guess more, more like the timbre, on that upstroke, you know, that, that really gives you a unique, I guess, like a unique tool in your toolbox as a guitarist. Well, that, that's, that's a, it's interesting that you would say that. That's exactly the way I feel about it. And, you know, I guess uh, it dawned on me one day when I was at work after about a year and a half of using these things. Again, I had no, uh, no aspirations for this design other than, you know, I liked it for myself. And I literally, I looked down at this thing one day in my hand, and I said, well, that's fabulous. I can do things I'd never heard before. And I play a lot. And I, you know, I said, I've never heard that before. I've never known I could do that before. And I can sound like this, and I've never been able to do that before. And I literally looked at this thing in my hand, and I, in my hand, I kind of scratched my head and went, wow, that's kind of cool. And then started developing mini materials. And, of course, 90% of them went in a big pile that I have in the back room of of mistakes that didn't quite work out, but some of them turned out quite good. And, and you know, it's funny, like, um, 
I think it was in the, possibly in the video I watched on, on Kickstarter, or maybe something something I read. But you stated and you you made like, like this statement is probably the truest statement it, you know there could ever be. Is players go out, they buy you know a two thousand dollar instrument, a ten thousand dollar Les Paul, and then we play play them with a twenty five cent pick. Yeah, that, that drives me crazy. You know, I I I think I was talking about a guitar I saw the other day on. On the internet, it was a $28,000 Strat. It was discounted down from $36,000, 1958 Strat. Well, you know, if you go into any given guitar store, usually they have a little bowl of picks that some kid has chewed on, and <laughs> you pick up one of these picks, and you pay, a, you know, you play a, a, a 1960 Les Paul that's worth, I don't know what, $18,000. It doesn't make any sense to me. I'm also a violinist, by the way, Aaron. And uh, I can I, I can assure you that violinists will spend as much or more on their violin bow as they do the the violin, and that's because the the bow is essentially the working instrument. The violin produces the sound, true, but the bow is what manipulates the violin. So violinists are very particular about their bow, and I don't understand, having gone through this, why the guitar pick isn't essentially the same as a violin bow. Yeah, you know, I, I completely agree with you on that. Cause I, I play, um, well, I played upright bass in my younger days, and you know, you, you're so right about the bow. I mean, the the bow is the whole communication. If you don't bow it right, if it's not set up right, the the hairs, the instruments can sound like crap. I mean, you can pluck it, but you can only get so far with plucking it. Mm-hmm. And you know, the really the same is true of a guitar. I mean, I play with picks where I hate the sound. I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. it sounds so weak or it sounds so wimpy. You know, so it's going to be really interesting to try this out, try this new design, and see what other kind of tones I can get. Well, the picks that I sent you, and I sent you a couple of what I call fitting picks as well. A fitting pick is essentially a very thin plastic pick that uh, I basically, I, well, I do. I send it to players and say, here, how does this feel in your hand? Now, like, my hand is very small. I have a very small hand, and yet one of the gentlemen I work with in songwriting is a huge guy, and his hand is like three times the size of mine. <laughs> and for me to say that the pick I like should work with him just doesn't make any sense to me. So I send the fitting picks out, and you'll, you'll get them. And uh, the idea with that is you take the pick, you see if it's too big or too small, too thin, too thin or not thin enough, and then I can manufacture one to your preferences. I can make picks all the way down to paper thin, and I have for some players. They like them just, you know, ridiculously thin in my estimation to where they, you know, almost blow away. Or one of the ones you're getting, the black one, is very, very thick and beefy. And that one was really designed uh, more for my preferences in, in that it really helps reduce pain because it's easy to hold. A small, thin pick is not easy to hold if you've had hand injuries. So you're going to get across the spectrum. The Lexan pick that you're going to be receiving, the, the Fire model, is one of my best picks, and that's kind of a hybrid of the design. It's several prototypes down the road from the one you see on the website, and it's much better. The one you're going to see is smaller, thinner, and of Lexan. It's a pretty slick pick. It's about as good as I can make, anyway. Yeah, that one really struck me because it looked like a dragon's tooth to me, just with, with like that fire red. Mm-hmm. So that yeah, I, I gotta say, like the picks, a lot of times struck me visually, and that's how I kind of made my choices this first time around for for ordering. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I just I can't wait to hear these sounds. Like, I think it's going to be a lot of fun to experiment with, with a new, I guess, kind of like in a new effects pedal, really. You know? Well, there you go. change what I do. It's interesting you should say that because I, I, have, make, I have made several picks out of, uh, and believe it or not, dinosaur, or, uh, shark's teeth, prehistoric shark, shark's teeth, nice. petrified shark's teeth in yeah. stone. Actually, make the, the shape is essentially the same as my pick. And you you carve out the center part of the part of the shark's tooth, and it makes <laughs> makes essentially my pick. Now how how that ever came about, I don't know, but they're fun to, fun to use. Of course, you can't specify the size on them. You kind of have to get what you <laughs> take what you get. Yeah, you get what you get. All right. Well, hey Frank, I don't want to take up any more of your time. So thank you for uh, so much for coming on the show tonight. Of course, it was my pleasure. All right. So that was our interview with Frank. So definitely go over, check out his project, check out his website, lifebloodpicks.com. Like I said, I already bought two of the picks. I'm planning on buying at least one more, the Dynamite Blue that we talked about in the interview. Probably going to pick that one up at some point. Um, And if I like these picks the way that I think I'm going to like them, because like I said, I haven't had a chance to play them yet. It's been a busy weekend here. Um, But if uh, these picks are what I think they're going to be, and I'm pretty sure they are going to be, I'll be probably getting the collection. But that's also why I went over to back the Kickstarter uh, <clears throat> campaign as well. Because, again, I'm always interested in new products that are coming out. All right. So speaking of um, products and projects, um, uh, my friend Sue over at RageAndApathy.com has an interesting project going on. Um, she has actually decided to uh, write an album live online, crowdsourcing feedback. And she's also doing a lot of um, giveaways, we'll say. As far as um, she's kind of taking her efforts and giving them back to the people who, who listen and participate. So if you're interested in getting maybe some free music, uh, especially sheet music right now, um, head on over to RagingAmpathy.com. Just sign up for the email list. And Sue's got a lot of free gifts that she's sending out for that sort of stuff. Check it out. It's some interesting stuff. Um, also, you'll be seeing more about that here in the future. Well, at least for me. Well, we'll talk about that later. All right, so next up, I have an interview with Mike Watt. Now, I got to talk to Mike on episode 171 for the Iron City Rocks podcast. He was coming back through Pittsburgh, so I made it a point to reach out to him and uh, interview him. He was coming back through for the second helping of the third opera tour is kind of what it was. Um, If you haven't seen Mike Watt play, especially on this third opera, you got to get out there and check it out because, wow. Wow, wow, is it an experience. Like, I, I still can't get those um, images and stuff out of my mind of just, just you know, the, the sights and just the energy and, and hearing all the sounds and just, wow, where the music was going. It was really, really a great show. Great show. So on the interview that I have with Mike today, um, we're going to focus on gear. We're going to talk a lot about, you know, the gear, the kind of stuff that he has. And then um, on Iron City Rocks, one of the things we actually talked about um, was the book that he has out. It's a um, it's a book that's a lot of the photographs that he takes of the San Pedro area because uh, that's where he lives and he loves his town. And um, so it, it's kind of like a photo picture book, uh, but it's also got some of his writings in it. And let me tell you, like, for a guy who, you know, t- says in the interview with Iron City Rocks that he's not a, um, he's not a professional photographer, it's more of a hobby, like, he gets some great, great pictures. So I want to read a couple excerpts from it, too, because that's what captured me, is the writings that they took from what he's on tour. So one of the things that he wrote here, and I think this is on page three of the book. So I travel between towns, between nations, between peoples. 
It's a perspective others might only imagine. Like for me, just being still. There is no deep mystery why I was attracted to punk rock. It's not where you're from, it's where you're at. And that was an excerpt um, from April 16th, 2005, he wrote while he was in Switzerland. So I, I really get a kick out of this book. We talk about it on the Iron City Rock Show. Um, I have one more quote I think I wanted to read. Here's another one. I bookmarked a couple here. All right, so this one is on page 36, and it goes like this. Realizing music was the most central, the only real legitimate connection. Everything else just illusion, confusion, and without substance. I finally relaxed some. It seemed to sit real good with me there. Felt right. A sense of relief, without having it spelled out or reduced by generalizing approximations. Letting it be for the sake of being what it was, and that was enough. And that was written July 18th, 2010, in the Czech Republic. So, those are some of the writings that go with the pictures. Um, the pictures are all of the San Pedro area. And again, they're just beautiful pictures. Like, it's really, really nice. Um, Mike's dad was a Navy, was a Navy guy. Um, and I think that's why he was kind of drawn to the water and stays around that area. My grandfather was a Navy guy. And that's, I think, why I'm drawn to this book and the pictures of the sea and everything that he takes. So... Um, definitely check that out, and let's get into our interview with Mike. So let's talk. Um, let's talk base gear here. I was checking out some of the, the pictures. I use little bases for tour. Okay, yeah, like the the SG style. Well, what I mean scale. is like uh, small scale. Yeah. Because uh, I'm a little y- less younger. <laughs> I'm gonna be 55 <laughs> in December, and my hands get sore. And uh, I don't record with them. I only okay. use them for gigs. Yeah, yeah. What'd you say, Gibson? Yeah, they were called EBs. There's EB3s, yeah. EBOs. Uh, EB3 has the two pickups. EBOs have the one pickup. Uh, the one you'll see me play in Pittsburgh is an EBO. Okay. Uh, that a man named Dan gave me because you know all the Stooges shit got stolen in 2008. Yeah, I remember reading Montreal. about that. But right after that, Adam Yalk gave me a bass. Uh, a young man in uh, New York State. God, what was the name of his town? Constableville. Okay. His name was Andy. He gave me a 69 EB3. And I was playing this gig in uh, San Diego, the Casbah, and after it, this young man named Dan said, Hey, Mike Watt, can I give you something? I said, Okay. And he gave me a 1965 Gibson EBO. Wow. And that's what you'll see me play. Now, it had two guitar pickups in it. I took out the original pickup, and I took out them two guitar pickups, and I put one... uh, a real grand pit bull. That real grand pickup company uh, made these replacement pick uh, pickups for Steinbergers. Okay. You know those cordy bases? Oh yeah. yeah kind of the size of a Les Paul pickup, and and that that's what he had put in there, or or wherever he got the base. It wasn't you know it wasn't stock. Of course, EB only had that one fat, and I never liked the the e, uh, the EB. Uh, I think you're right, though. Nowadays, Gibson does call that bass SG. Because in the well, old days, he only called the guitar the SG. Yes. In the old days, they called the, the basses that looked like that, they called them EB. For maybe for electric bass, I don't know. Yeah, I, I really think you're correct. I think it was the EB for electric but, bass. But I just always equate call that it shape SG, with an yeah. SG. Yeah. Because, in fact, the next gig after the shit getting stolen was in Toronto, and that's where the Canada Gibson people are. They wanted to make, give me a bass. Oh, in fact, nice. they did give me some bass they had 
you know, I think for a video or something from their shop. And uh, I think Stooges guys still use that as a backup base. But uh, they're not that good. <laughs> you know, there's something about those early 60s ones. Even I'm the 69 is different than 65. The, yep. They got new owners in 67. So you get a 66 and before, they're different. They're different. Even the mahogany's different. You know, and uh, yeah, I'm a little more partial to uh, the earlier ones. The one that got stolen from me was a 63 EB3. Wow. And I really like that one. I was used to it. But the 65 is pretty close to it in a way. <laughs> Maybe that's why I play it a lot. Now, do you use any pedals like that. Left? Now, I don't record with the, those little basses. You get a better sound with a full scale. Okay. So I got a 56 uh, P bass. That's got Thunderbird pickups. Yeah, I bought this thing for $200 because somebody had cut a big hole where the original pickup was. Uh, and I thought, wow, a Thunderbird pickup will, will cover up that hole. And it's got a V-neck, you know, a tobacco thing. And I use that for recording. I've got a Moon. A moon is like a Jap copy of a jazz bass. It's a Larry Graham model. It's really excellent bass. No... Uh, Dead spots, great intonation. Ain't so good live, though. You know, it's kind of flat. Great for recording. And then uh, I also got a uh, one of these new Mexican uh, Fender P's. Yeah, those are, those are pretty good. Shit, yeah, man, it's $300. You know, I played them, right? And I found yeah. one, wow, with a rosewood neck. Now, it had a uh, active electronics. I tore all that out, and I put in a... Pete Jones pickup. Oh, the TV Jones. David a gnarlier. You know about this guy, Pete Jones? He winds his own pickups. And, oh, uh, it was it Pete Lawler? I mean, get, get these guys. No, nah, this guy's name is Jones. Okay. And uh, shit, maybe I could send you uh, uh, a link to his site. I mean, he he he's he's really got it down to where you still got that P base. P pickup sound, you know, James Jamerson. That's what I love about the P bass. And, and if you notice, on even those EB basses I play for live, yeah. you know, I don't like that pickup so close to the neck, that mud bucker. Yeah. So I always take those out, and I usually put on a, a pick guard to cover the hole. And then I, I put a pickup right where a P bass would be, which is yeah. kind of in the middle, right? If you see yeah. most basses that have a, a, a bridge pickup and a neck pickup, a P bass is kind of in the middle, and I think that's the best place to have a pickup on a bass. That balances out the tone. You get a little bit of that's high end, a little bit of low end. You still got foundation to glue shit together, but you still yeah. got some punch, some definition. Yeah. So now the stock pickup in this thing wasn't so good, uh, so I put in this. Uh, yeah. P- I'm pretty sure his name is. You know, he doesn't put a logo on his things. He's very uh, uh, kind of, uh, yeah, what do you say? Um, well, obviously he wants to market his stuff, but he's not a, I don't know, egomaniac kind of thing, you know. He just goes by his work. Uh, the Lawler pickup, I do have a bass with a Lawler pickup, but that's okay. the one I play with the Stooges. James Williamson had uh, Brian Michaels make this kind of uh 
replica of an EB base, but it's much different. It's got a, a maple, a one-piece neck. The wow. body is like two uh, ears glued on, you know? Okay. You know, like an old Thunderbird? Oh, yeah, you neck through, yeah. Yeah, neck through. That, that's the one that I play in the Stooges. It's red. It's got a rosewood uh, fingerboard, but the neck is maple. And then yeah. you've got alder uh, ears glued on for the body. And right. that's got a, a, a Lawler pickup, Jason Lawler pickup. Well, that's going to be a whole different tone altogether because when you have that huge one-piece neck, that's a completely different approach to the resonance, you know, the vibrations that you get there. To, uh, to, a, to a bolt-on? Yeah. Yeah. And then the Gibsons, you know, they're two pieces, but they're glued. Yeah, I've always said that the glue gives you a different sound, too. It's amazing how little... Well, also, also, also the mahogany. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the thing about part. the EBs, which for live basses I kind of like because they round out uh, maybe too much attack with the maple stuff, too much dink, dink, dink. And, uh, yeah, the, uh, the, the mahogany rounds out your attack. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. I, 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 I like those little mahogany Gibson basses for gigs. And, of course, for Stooges, I, do, I played the one that uh, James Williamson had built for me. But uh, basically, I got into them was to help my left hand and just getting too sore. Yeah. <laughs> now, you know, you do which is kind of, uh, what would you say, uh, pragmatic. <laughs> yeah. Now, for your for your library, do you use any effects at all? You know, uh, the only time I I've used them on a couple uh, album tracks for my second opera, I really tried to use effects. Mm-hmm. I got one of them little boards with a phaser and a flanger, yeah. and I guess they were made by Box Boss, and they fit into this plastic board. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, uh, envelope filter, and, but man, it was hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> so mainly, I'm just a guy who goes. It seems a lot of that stuff uh, screws the punch, the low end, and you know what I'm saying. There's something oh, yeah, about using variables. Uh, I, I've used it on some bass solos, uh, distortion to give you sustain. Okay. But live, I'm pretty much a, just plug it into the amp man. <laughs> wow, that's a tone. Because I tell you, when, when you were here last April, I just marveled at your bass sound. It, it was just... Now, last was, April, I, wow. I used that Dan bass, and my amp was uh, the Eden. Okay. Right? Two 4 by 10 boxes. I love, I love using 4 by 10s I think sound. that's what I used. Eden uh, DXL 4 by 10s He's got a new company, David Eden. It's called DNA, and he gave me these two ten boxes, half the weight. Okay. They're, 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 they're 700 watts still. Wow. And I've been using them for almost a year now. And you tell me, if you, I think they got great tone, as good as those four tens, if not better, and only nice. 50 pounds. Uh, now, is that uh, the rig that's going to be coming through this time around? That's what you're going to see, yeah. I still Excellent. got the Eden preamp. I got a QSC for the power amp. He's coming out with his own DNA amp, but he ain't ready yet. And I'll be interested in it. I love the, uh, it's called the WP-100. It's a navigator preamp. I, I also use it with the Stooges stuff, even though I go through uh, 
two stacks of SVTs or Laney's, I first go through my preamp, and I just yeah. use those power amps as slaves. That's awesome, because it is just such an aggressive tone. It, it Like, it cuts, but it still sits, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, you know yeah. I mean? Well, I want, to, I want people to know what notes I'm playing. You know, I don't want to be a total, like, just mud hiding in the curtain, you know. But at the same time, I do want to, you know, I have to be part of a rhythm section. Yeah. But the politics of bass is you look good making your guys look good, and I like that. Yep, yep, that's it's exactly. It's not all me, me, me. Even if it's your band, even if you wrote the songs, the, the, the basic politics of the band, a bass player, is you look good making your guys look good. Yeah. And I love that because I love Tom. I love Raul. You know, I got into music to be with my buddy D. Boone. His mama put me on bass. But, man, I could never be more grateful to her. Yeah. Because it is an interest. It's also an instrument that's still trying to find itself. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, it I really mean, it's still in its, uh, I mean, James Jameson did a lot for us. John Entwistle, Geezer Butler, Jack yep. Bruce, Larry Graham, they've done a lot for it, but it's still fighting itself. And uh, yep. it's an interesting thing. I'm, I, I feel very grateful for being part of that. Oh, I, yeah, and I would say you've done a lot. Part of the, what do well. we call it, like the mission. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, Mike, I don't want to take up any more of your time. Thanks so much for doing this interview today. All right, everybody. So uh, that concludes our show today. I want to thank Frank and Mike for coming on the show and talking to us. Um, I had a great time talking to both gentlemen. Uh, Really, really interesting projects on both sides. And I just want to remind you, check out my blog, signaltonoise.fm. Um, that I've been a lot more active with that lately. You'll see a lot more articles coming out. In fact, um, look around, um, well, the week of Thanksgiving, I have my holiday gift guide coming out. I'm now calling it my annual holiday gift guide because the second time I've been able to do it. Um, I uh, also want you to check out RageAndApathy.com because I'm involved over there, um, and mostly in a playing capacity. I've been playing bass on some projects and things that are coming out. So definitely go over, check that out, check out those recordings. And of course, please check out the Cast Iron Ring and all the great podcasts um, that are on that ring. I, I tell you, like that's, that's where I do go for entertainment. I, I kid you not. We've got some very, very interesting shows and some great perspectives and takes on uh, music and metal. It's really a great time. All right, guys, so that's it. I'm going to sign off. And until next time, make some noise.